You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, I'm assuming uh, that by now most of you are familiar with what many are referring to as the Asbury Revival. Now, whether or not what happened at Asbury fits the definition of a true revival, that much can be debated, and certainly time will tell. But in case you're not familiar with what happened, here's what took place. Uh, It was about three weeks ago, students from Asbury University met for what was supposed to be just nothing more than an regularly scheduled chapel meeting when they felt moved to linger in prayer and worship afterward and this eventually led to a gathering that lasted two full weeks and scores of people traveling from all around the country to Asbury and in fact it became such a big deal that mainstream media outlets heard about what was going on and naturally uh, plenty news people asking why others would travel such long distances Uh, to head over to Asbury. Uh, After all, as one person on Twitter pointed out, there was no one serving donuts, not a single smoke machine, no fancy lights, no timers, no perfect productions, no kids class, nobody to greet you in the parking lot, literally no structure whatsoever, yet people came. And came they did from even abroad, And there were so many people that came that there was a line that formed outside the chapel that I saw videos coming out where you had people lined up around one corner and then another corner waiting for hours on end just to enter an old chapel and sit in a wooden pew among people that were singing and praying. And and so since that time, people have asked, you know, what do you make of this pastor cody and i guess here's my takeaway from it it truly is another example of just how hungry that people are for something more is it not we live in a world that is constantly inundating us uh, with the material uh, promoting the idea that you know if you just do this next thing then life will be better then you'll be satisfied If you just take this medication, if if you just listen to this piece of advice, if you just buy this thing, if you just go to this event, it's all going to be better. And, you know, I think people are just kind of, there's plenty of people waking up to the fact that there's nothing out there that can satisfy the soul. And so I think that's why so many people headed to Asbury, because their souls longed with something more, and they hoped that that something more could be found at Asbury. So that's my takeaway. And so here's my encouragement to any who look at Asbury. Be prayerful. Because no matter where you look out in the world and there are false things that take place, we should always be hoping that God would do a true work in the world and among his people. And that's my takeaway, because here's, here's the deal. Are there things which happened at Asbury that concern me? Sure. Do I have concerns that there was an absence of biblical preaching or possibly a clear message of repentance? Yes. 
But still, this much is obvious. We live in a world that is hungering for something more, even though they have been given endless answers, antidotes, and solutions. And so I think the message is clear. It's clear that what the world has to offer is not working. And we know why it's not working. Because there's only one hope, and it truly is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And this morning, we are going to be reminded of that glorious truth in a real sweet way as we turn open our Bibles to Matthew. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn it open to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 34. And it's all about Jesus this morning. Another passage where we see him interacting with broken people. Another passage where we see his overwhelming compassion, his remarkable love, and his overwhelming power. So if you would, follow along with me as I begin reading for us in verse 29. Matthew writes, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So notice the setting in verse 29. We read that the events taking place occurred when Jesus and the disciples were on their way out of Jericho. And just as a reminder... Remember where Jesus is going. He is headed to Jerusalem. He has his face set like flint to get to Jerusalem. So Jericho is not the destination. Jerusalem is the destination. And Jericho, they're just passing through. But one thing that makes this trip different is that this will be the last trip that Jesus makes to Jerusalem, right? Hence why he is spending an increasing amount of time talking about his future sufferings and his death and his resurrection. And the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more he's talking about it, and for good reason, because as we have noticed time and again, it's clear that the disciples still don't fully get Jesus. And they still fully don't understand what he has come to do. In particular... They especially don't understand the need for this suffering piece, right? Before the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Which is why they keep talking about positions and greatness and status and honors and who gets to sit next to Jesus. Their minds are filled with glory and power and victory. But where is Jesus' attention? Where's his focus? He continues to contemplate and teach about the need for suffering and serving and the cross, which is where we ended our time last week. If you would, look at Matthew 20, verse 25. 
Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to just hang on those verses for a moment. Again, just think about what Jesus just said, because what do we see today but an illustration of those verses? And we've seen healing passages before in Matthew, but I always love it when we come to another one, because we just cannot contemplate enough these two profound attributes that come together in Jesus where we see that not only is he a king with power but what else is he? He is a shepherd who cares and he cares deeply and even though again he is worthy to be served he comes not to be served but to serve and he even does it for those who the world would least expect and with that in mind, then, I want us to move through verses 29 through 34, noticing especially four scenes that I think continue to illustrate Jesus' power, compassion, and love towards anyone who comes to him in faith. So here's our outline. I'm going to give it to you in advance. First, we will notice a desperate cry in verse 30. Then we'll notice a calloused crowd in verse 31. Then we'll look at a merciful king in verses 32 through 34. And then we will look at a corrected course at the end of verse 34. So point one then, I want us to notice in verse 30, a desperate cry. A desperate cry. So Jesus, again, he's, he's leaving Jericho. And as we notice, he is surrounded by all sorts of people. He's being followed by a crowd when suddenly two men... We're not given the names of these men from Matthew, but Mark 10 informs us that one of them is named Bartimaeus. They begin to cry out and shout, and they would have needed to shout, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, we have seen the statement, have mercy, before, haven't we? We've seen it quite a few times in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 9, the same statement was made by two other blind men that Jesus healed in Galilee. They said, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew 15, verse 22, a Canaanite woman said to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. In Matthew 17, a father also similarly sought help for his son when he said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. So every time we hear these words, we see an absolutely desperate situation. And today is no different. It is very in dire indeed because we're talking about two people who would have been living on the edge of life. And they would have been hanging on by nothing more than a thread. Two people who woke up wondering each day how they would possibly survive to the next. Given their condition, we know that they couldn't have held a job.
And so they are fully, fully dependent on others, which is why they are on this particular road, right? They're sitting next to a busy traveling route, and each day they'd come to this road hoping that just by chance someone, anyone, would have enough generosity and kindness to lend them a helping hand. But there was no guarantee that anyone would. And even worse, there was no hope that their condition would improve since it was well known that there was no effective treatment for their condition. No antibiotics, no surgical procedures, no LASIK, no eyeglasses, nothing. And trust me, if there was something that could have helped, they would have known about it because in Jesus' day, blindness was quite common. There were a lot of reasons people would become blind. You could become blind from an illness such as malaria, from exposure to blowing dust and sand from the glare of the sun, poor hygiene in unsanitary living conditions, an accident, old age, or even because of a fly spreading someone else's disease. Interestingly, the most common eye disease in Palestine and Egypt at that time is described as a purulent ophthalmia. And it affected people of all ages, but especially children, because at night flies would land on a child's face, pick up whatever liquid was secreting from their eyes, and take it to someone else, oftentimes an infant. So blindness was common, and I don't think I need to tell you, but it, it affected everything. Well, not just the day-to-day lifestyle of people, but even one's worship. Because suddenly, you became ceremonially unclean. People couldn't even serve in the priesthood, right, if they were blind. There were limitations to society and to worship. But you know what may have been the worst part of being blind? The fact that if you were blind, then many people just assumed that you did something sinful to become that way. In fact, we see this kind of thinking even among the disciples. Because what do they say in John chapter 9 as they pass by a man who has been blind since birth? They say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered this way. He said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, why people thought blindness was necessarily a result of sin, we're not sure, but one can only wonder if it's because in the Old Testament there were at least two occasions when God did blind people when they were in the act of sinning and rebelling against the Lord. One example can be seen in Genesis chapter 19, the men of Sodom. Another can be seen of the Syrians in 2 Kings 25 verse 7. Still, though, in spite of those two examples, God's heart for the blind should have been very evident because he specifically outlined in the Old Testament how they were to be treated. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 18, he went even as far as to threaten punishment on anyone who mistreated the blind, such as misleading them. So here again, we have these two men, blind, desperate, weary, hopeless, outcasts of society. But on this particular day, there is hope, isn't there? And why? Because they have heard 
as they have sat along this busy, busy road, they have heard about a man named Jesus. And they have heard that he can do anything that he pleases. And he has the power to heal any illness and any infirmity. And more than that, he also delights to use his power to help those who are in desperate need. And so they cry out with the utmost confidence. They call Jesus Lord. And I think there's something more than just realizing he was a man of respect and of authority, but they understood him to be the supreme Lord, the, the, the master of civilization, the creator of all. They also call him the son of David. I mean, these men have a very accurate and proper view of Jesus. And you think about how they learned about it, right? They knew who he was, and they never even saw him with their own eyes. But similar to our situation today, we only come to faith in Jesus through hearing about him, and they were the same. All they did was hear about Jesus, but in hearing about Jesus, God activated faith within them, and they cry out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy. And then what happens? Notice the shift here. Next we see, secondly, a calloused crowd in verse 31. So these men are crying out, but but notice the crowd's response. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Now we're not exactly told why the crowd was hushing these men, but to me it seems eerily similar to the moment when the disciples were rebuking those who were bringing children to Jesus to bless them. Remember that? All sorts of people bringing these children to Jesus, and the disciples are there, no doubt acting in what they felt was Jesus' best interest, sincere in what they were doing. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't, don't bother the teacher. He's busy. They knew he had a very full ministry schedule, lots to get done. We can't, we can't have the teacher be troubled by these children. So if you would, just, you know, take their runny noses someplace else. But then how did Jesus respond? No, he said, let the children come to me. And in saying this, he spoke volumes, making it clear that he is not above caring for children. And he is not above taking time for those considered insignificant members within society, which children were considered. And here it's almost as if the crowd is doing the same thing. Like, what, what are you guys doing? Don't, don't bother the teacher. Well, why don't you just ask the next guy coming down this road for help? But don't bother Jesus. They're likely annoyed Many of them probably are used to being begged for something from these men. They're maybe even slightly embarrassed by them. But did that deter the men? No, not at all, because we're told that they cried out all the more, and for every moment they were told, shh, chill out, be quiet. They got louder. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They aren't embarrassed to cry out. 
And there are two things I think that this communicates. First, it certainly speaks to how desperate these men were, but secondly, it also shows us how great their faith was. I mean, they had absolutely no doubt what Jesus could do for them. And they also believed he would be willing to help. And those two things, may I just say, are critical. They're critical. In fact, I would say that they are proofs of real saving faith. Saving faith believes both that God is able, but also that God is willing. And I'm not saying that saving faith is perfect faith. Saving faith might also have doubts. It might also, from time to time, sound like, I believe, help my unbelief. But at the end of the day, their faith reached out to Jesus knowing that he could do the impossible. And the men here, they know who they have believed in, and so they cry out with every ounce of energy that they have. And as a result, what happens? Something extraordinary that the Lord, the Son of David, heard them, and this is where we then see things shift to another scene where we see a merciful king. We see a merciful king. And one thing I just want to point out is how Jesus here is focused on more than anything else. It's clear that he is, he is the main character in this passage, which is why we have verses 32 through 34 focusing on him. And as we look at these verses, I just want us to move through the actions of Jesus. Because as you just slow down and you pause and you go, what did Jesus actually do here? I think it's incredibly profound and powerful. So first, notice he stops. He stops. Is that really that profound? Uh, yeah, you know what? I think in a very busy hustle and bustle world that we live in, I think it's profound that he stopped. Friends, he allowed his schedule to become interrupted. He was okay with having something interfere with what was going on at hand. And why? Because people were his mission. People weren't in annoyance. People weren't in inconvenience. He longed to care for them. He longed to serve them. And without taking too much attention away from Jesus, I do want to maybe just plug a little application for your lives. How often are you willing to have God interrupt your schedule? If you're going to be like Jesus, then you should even be praying that God would place divine interruptions in your life. And may you also pray with that a heart that would trust Jesus when those moments come up. That you would have great enough faith that whatever your plans are set on, that you know what? Jesus will give me enough strength for that moment that's coming down the road. I can allow my time to be interrupted. Jesus allowed his time to be interrupted. Mark 10, verses 49 through 50 actually describe the scene this way. It says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so at that time, it would seem that some folks from the crowd then went to go get the men, and they said to the men, take heart. Get up. He is calling you. 
I love this part. Just realize the reaction by these men. We're told, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. He was so eager, so excited, so moved, so energetic. He would have run if he could have seen where he was going. And can you imagine? You get, you get to now go and be with Jesus. He's calling you. You just hoped he would hear you, but now he's spending time with you. But not only is he spending time with you, because what is he doing next? He actually asks these men, what would you like me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? Like, you need to just understand, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is, okay, what do you want? I don't think that's the tone. I think that there is tenderness. I think there's sympathy. I think there's concern. I think it's more along the lines of, gentlemen, how can I serve you? How can I care for you? And there's no hesitation with them. They've thought for a long time what it is that they so desire. And so they say to the Lord, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Again, there's confidence. They didn't say, Lord, would you be willing to open our eyes? They didn't say, Lord, if it's possible, open our eyes. They said, Lord, let our eyes be open. We know you've got the power to do it. All you have to do is just say a word. And what does Jesus do? We're told in pity he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Key to this verse is the phrase in pity in pity now mercy and pity are both words mentioned in this passage right we see mercy mentioned lord have mercy on us son of david but then he acts in pity and so we kind of go what's the relationship between these two words well they both certainly focus on jesus desire to help those who are in desperate situations and to help the needy but pity is unique because it speaks more to the emotion that leads to the aid or to the help. So what I want you to realize is that Jesus, he, he doesn't simply know what these men need and do it, but he felt something. Like in the, in the bowels, in the depths of his being, Jesus was moved with compassion meaning he had a visceral response to seeing the suffering of these men, and it was this feeling which led him to relieve their suffering. So I, we gave out some time ago the book Gentle and Lowly. In that book, Dane Ortland points out how the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a famous essay, essay in 1912 called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in it, he explored what the Gospels reveal about Christ's inner life, what Warfield calls his emotional life. Warfield didn't mean what we often mean by the word emotional, imbalanced, reactionary, driven by our feelings in an unhealthy way. He simply noticed what Jesus felt. And as he reflected on Christ's emotions, Warfield noticed this, how there was always perfect balance proportion and control to Jesus' feelings on one hand 
and extensive depths to them on the other. And in speaking about Jesus' compassion, here's what he especially notices, how Jesus didn't simply operate in deeds of compassion, but felt the inner turmoils of pity toward the unfortunate. He had, in other words, a heart throbbing with pity. Not just a passing, fleeting feeling, but a moment when he felt something to his guts. And I, I think you can relate here. I think you've probably had some moments where you felt like your heart was being ripped out of its chest because of what you were observing. Friends, Jesus knew those moments. And in fact, let me just say this, he still knows them now. That whatever you're facing, whatever trial you are going through, whatever heartache that you have, Jesus comprehends it more than anybody else you know. And for this reason, we can take hope and comfort and encouragement because just as he turned to help these blind men in their suffering, he still stands prepared to help you with yours. And he is a perfect high priest who intercedes for you before the throne of God, and he can do so because he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he did not sin. Fully obedient to the Father. And so, friends, run to him. Go to him. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're facing this week, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his friend and his child. And may no person ever say or ever think that God doesn't care about what's going on in their lives. Does he care? He cares greatly. Does he feel concern? Overwhelmingly so. And it is his concern that leads him to action, to act on behalf of his people. And this isn't distinctly unique to the New Testament either, or to Jesus, right? Because this is also true in the Old Testament with God. And like we should just commonly make that kind of connection, right? That whatever... Jesus does, God does, whatever God does is something Jesus also does because whoever God is, Jesus is. And whoever Jesus is, God is. We could think of Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Listen to this, friends. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Often throughout Scripture, it would truly be countless to go through all the times where God's mercy is spoken of, at times, it is also combined with the concept of God's steadfast love, his loyal love, his faithful love. One example would be Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the greatness, the goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. 
God's love, God's compassion are continually poured out and available and at work towards his people. And I mean, we even see just how far this compassion goes, right? Because as Jesus heals these men, how does he do it? Again, he's got the power to just say the words, right? But he doesn't. With his own hands, he touches them. He touches them. Slow down when you are reading the Gospels. Always ask the question of how Jesus does what he does, or you will miss something. Jesus literally puts his own personal touch on the situation. He personalizes things and brings a profoundly affectionate care in this set of circumstances. And he always, always does this. Do you? So if you're tracking the actions of Jesus, first Jesus stops. Then he invites the men's request. Then he has pity. Then he touches them. And what's the result? Immediate healing. And we can't leave that out because, once again, we see the miracle-working power of Jesus. It, this wasn't a healing in stages. It, it wasn't a healing that happened over a period of time or they slowly got their vision back. No, it was, it was instantaneous. In a moment, in the blinking of an eye, the vision of these men was made perfect. And this leads to the fourth scene in our story, which is this, a corrected course, a corrected course. And here my point is very simple. So the blind men, they received the correction of their sight on this particular day, right? But it was clear something else was corrected too. And you know what it was? They suddenly had a corrected lifestyle. They suddenly had corrected everyday choices because after this healing what do they do it says they followed jesus <laughs> think of these this these men they got a new lease on life and they didn't waste it but they responded to the gift that had been given to them in order to spend the rest of their days gazing upon the savior who had just opened their eyes And friends, I would say this is actually the true mark of a real revival. A true revival is not just a one-time experience, but an experience that is followed up by a whole life of chasing after Jesus. And that's key. That's what saving faith is. It's not simply going to Jesus with the burden of your hearts when you're sad, when you're mad, when you're lonely or whatever feeling you have, there are lots of people who turn to God with all of those emotions. But the question is always, okay, in light of your experience, do you live in submission to Jesus Christ? Is all of life about Him, honoring Him, serving Him, humbling yourself unto Him? Because if you love Jesus, you will indeed do those things. Now, I've pointed out certain things before about miracles, but I think they need to be said again 
since there are so many misunderstandings that people have about miracles. One being that faith is required for a miracle. The other being that a miracle will lead to someone's faith. But neither are true. Neither are true. First, let's think about the idea that faith is required for a miracle. Now, it is quite clear that in this particular healing, Jesus honors the faith of these men. He uses the faith as part of the healing. He says that your faith has made you well. But we could look at all sorts of ever, uh, other instances where there's no mention of faith, but Jesus does the healing. Why? Because he's chosen to heal. He doesn't need faith to heal. Your lack of faith doesn't make Jesus less powerful. And in some instances, he'll actually use the faith of someone else to heal another person. And earlier we looked at a couple of examples, one being of a mother who seeks Jesus' help for her daughter who is possessed by a demon, and another being of a father who seeks Jesus' help on behalf of his son. And in both of those cases, it was actually the faith of the parent that leads to the healing of the children. Secondly, there are plenty of people who think, well, you know, we, we, we pray for a miracle because once Jesus performs the miracle, then the person's heart is prepared to hear the gospel, and then they'll be prepared to come to Jesus. But again, it seems so basic, but I just challenge that entire notion, and it just flies in the face of so much that we know of Scripture, because what do we see time and time again throughout the gospels? That Jesus performed countless miracles, and yet plenty of people didn't believe. They didn't believe. Perhaps the most, I guess, obvious picture of this would be with the Pharisees, right? I mean, it was clear that Jesus had casted out demons, and rather than humbling themselves to worship him and go, oh my goodness, God is among us. The Messiah is here. The Son of David has come. What do they do? They accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. No matter how much evidence is put in front of someone for God's existence, the truth will continue to be suppressed in unrighteousness because of our sinful hearts. And this, friends, then brings me to a very important point, which is this. That the greatest thing that we need today is not the healing of physical sight, but the healing of spiritual sight. Because as you look at the Bible, we see blindness as a description of the human condition. It is a description of the human condition. And it's not a new problem, but an old one, right? Which is why Moses spoke of Israel's apostasy as blindness. Isaiah said of Israel that they had dim eyes. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were blind guides leading the blind. And in Matthew 23, which we're going to get to very soon, right? Five different times he calls the Pharisees blind. But friends, the same is true for every single one of us, that the moment we are born into the world, we are born spiritually blind. And every one of us stands in the same place. And none of us is able to see the glory of the Lord. None of us is able to see the sinfulness of our sin. 
None of us is able to comprehend the grace and the mercy of God without God restoring our sight. And this is why in 2 Corinthians, I just want you to think about what Paul says here. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, that represents the state of every person born into this world. Satan's goal is to continue to keep people blind. The only one that can give sight is God. And he does it through the gospel, through Christ being proclaimed. And that's why in verse 5, Paul suddenly says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the basis of the receiving of our sight is no different than the basis on which those blind men received their sight. The basis is always God's mercy. It's always his mercy. And that's why the appeal to come to God should always be grounded in mercy. God longs to be merciful. God delights to be merciful. God will be merciful to those who come to him in faith. It is precisely why it could be said, if you return to the Lord... The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you. In Jeremiah 3, the prophet declared, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. And David certainly understood the kind of grace, the kind of mercy that was available to him, even though he had committed immorality, even though he had murdered one of his most trusted men. And eventually he turns, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And yet, why haven't you come before the throne of grace this week? Because you thought that your sin was too great, too detestable, too abhorrent to go to the Lord? His mercy is abundant. There is plenty of it, and there is plenty of it for you, and it is always available, as Proverbs 28, 13 says. To the one who confesses and forsakes their transgression. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And friends, this morning we get to be reminded of that abundant mercy as we celebrate this wonderful supper that the Lord has given to us. And I want to invite 
our servers down here. On the first Sunday of the month, we always celebrate uh, what the Lord has given us as a sign uh, to remember what he has done for us. There's not a single person in here today that can lay any claim on God that they deserve any standing with God because of what they have done. We are here by God's mercy. We are forgiven by God's mercy. We are made children by God's mercy. And that's what the Lord's Supper represents, that, that Jesus was betrayed, that his body was broken, and that his blood was shed. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.